which is on the screen there, are some famous words from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. And they, they say, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Then they're famous words, they're words that have acted to remind people throughout all the centuries since Isaiah spoke these in the 8th century BC of the privilege and the blessing it is for God's people to bring good news to other people. And quite apart from their context in the Bible, they're words that on the surface at least most people would agree with. It is a beautiful thing to bring good news to people, just as a beautiful thing to receive good news ourselves. And good news can come in many forms. When two people we care about get engaged or get married, that's good news. When a child is safely born into the world, it is good news. Perhaps we get promoted finally at work or a holiday is finally booked or we move into a new home after a long process or Ireland beat England in the rugby. All these things are good news that we can rejoice in. Good news is a welcome thing. We welcome it and we are grateful to those who bring that news to us. But we look at that bit of Isaiah again and we think about these words in their context in the Bible. We understand more why the feet of the people who bring the sort of good news Isaiah describes are described as beautiful. Because in some ways I want to define being a Christian today as someone who brings good news. A Christian is a person who brings good news. I don't know if you always feel like that. I don't know if the people who know you always feel like that when you approach them. But that's what that bit of Isaiah is getting at. And that's what the Apostle Paul is driven by in the city of Athens in the bit of Acts 17 we're looking at this morning. See, Paul has good news to share in Athens. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then the Bible tells you that you have good news to share as well. But the question then becomes, what exactly is this good news that Christians are meant to share? What is the good news that is meant to make our feet beautiful, according to Isaiah? We've already been thinking a bit about that this morning. It's a good question to ask, what is the greatest news that we as a church have to share with the people of East Oxford? And it's a question that we might answer in many different ways. See, we live in a needy city. We live in a time and a country that is struggling in so many ways. And there are many needs all around us. And sometimes when I think about that question, what is the greatest news I could share with people in East Oxford? I think maybe one answer would be to model what a real community looks like. And Nick was sharing a bit about that with us um, through the work of Sunflowers earlier on. Across the age ranges, people all around us are longing to belong to a community. Back in the 60s, the Beatles sang a song, Eleanor Rigby, and they asked the question, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? And you just have to walk through Templar Square or Corn Market on a weekday to see there are plenty of lonely people in Oxford around us. Teenagers who feel lonely, older people who feel isolated, parents with young children who feel trapped in their homes. So many experience a deep loneliness and they long to belong somewhere, to have people around them who care 
for them, truly, in a deep way. And the list could go on to include asylum seekers, university lecturers, international students. So is community the greatest news we have to share with the people around us? Well, some people might answer differently. They might say the greatest news we can share with people is that you can have a clear conscience, that you can be forgiven for the bad things that you've done. Guilt and regret cripple so many of us more than even we admit to that guilt and regret in our lives. So is forgiveness the greatest news we have to share? Is it that fresh start in our lives that the gospel seems to offer? Or is the greatest news we can share reserved for the future? Is that news heaven? That we get to go to heaven when we die and see God face to face? See, all these things are good news according to the Bible. They are precious benefits that flow out from being a Christian. But when we look at Paul's sermon to the people of Athens here in Acts 17, I think we can see a slightly different emphasis to this good news. You see, for Paul, the greatest news we have to share with the world around us is who God is. His character and the fact that people like us can know him. See, Paul is clear to the Athenian people. His message to them is good news because it is news about the living God, the only person worth living for, and how he invites all of us to come to know him and to enjoy life with him. See, there's a Christian pastor and author called John Piper, and he published a book recently entitled God is the Gospel. I haven't read it. I've read lots of other Piper things. He's very well worth reading. But that title really stuck with me when I was looking at this passage. God, according to Paul, is the Gospel. His message is about who God is and how he invites us to know him. And all the benefits of the Christian life we want to share with people, like community, like forgiveness, like a fresh start, like heaven even, they all mean nothing without that good and living God that stands behind them all and offers those things to us. See, the greatest news we have to share with people is God, is the God we trust in. Because when people truly see what He is like, they begin to experience life as He intends us to live it. So that's Paul's message to the people of Athens in these verses we're looking at this morning. And as Andy's already said to us, Paul has come a long way since we last saw him two weeks ago in Acts chapter 9. Then he was a recently converted man, still going by the name of Saul. But God intervened in his life, we saw, and he transformed him from a violent enemy of Christians into the greatest Christian missionary of them all. A man responsible more than any other for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ across the ancient world. And in Acts 17, Paul is midway through his second great missionary journey. In the early part of the chapter, he's preaching the good news of Jesus to Jews and Greeks in Thessalonica and Berea. And if you look over those verses later on, you'll see that that earned Paul a lot of enemies in those places, among his fellow Jews who violently opposed his message. So eventually, in verses 14 and 15, the Christians with Paul think it's best to send Paul away to the coast to get him away 
from that opposition. So Paul arrives in the city of Athens in verse 15. And the implication of that verse is that Athens may have been intended as a place for Paul to lie low for a while after the opposition of the previous places he'd been in. See, perhaps the early Christians and perhaps Paul himself felt he needed time to recover from those experiences. And that Athens was as good a place as any for him to rest for a while. Again, there's not a huge proportion of Jews in Athens. So they're thinking, well, Paul's pretty safe there. The Jews aren't going to oppose him there. He can wait and recover there for a while. But if Athens was chosen as a quiet place for Paul to lie low and recover, well, verse 16 tells us the effect that the city of Athens soon began to have on Paul as he stayed there. Just read verses 16 and 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. See, why was Paul in great distress in Athens? Surely he could have taken this opportunity to rest for a while. Well, he's in distress because that city is full of idols, verse 16 tells us. See, Athens, it was famous for its culture. It was famous for its learning, its history of producing some of the greatest minds that had ever lived. It had magnificent temples and architecture. It enjoyed great independence from the Roman Empire. But when Paul looked around, all he could see underneath all of Athens' proud achievements and its grandeur was this truth that the people of Athens did not know the living God. And that grieved Paul. It got to him. It saddened him. It caused him great distress to the point where he knew what he had to do. He had to make God known in that city. And by verse 18 of the chapter, Paul's making a name for himself. He doesn't automatically earn a lot of respect from his hearers. It's important for us to see that. Some of them are asking, what is this babbler trying to say? Not the most ringing endorsement of Paul's preaching. But what he does earn is an invitation to the Areopagus in verse 19, to the most respected council in Athens, where he's invited to present his new teaching to the people of Athens. Paul jumps at that chance, and in verse 22, he begins to address the crowd. He says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. I want to suggest it's not hard to see the similarities between Athens in the first century and Oxford in the 21st century. See, both are proud cities. Both are cities famous for learning. Both have impressive histories. But if we're to learn from Paul's perspective in Acts 17, Oxford today shares something else far more important with Athens back then. See, instead of worshipping the living God, most people in Oxford are worshipping idols today. And for many people in Oxford, the God who reveals himself through Jesus 
is an unknown God to them. See, that fact caused Paul great distress in Athens. And if we're Christians here today, it should get to us when we see people around us who don't know God, who instead are chasing after other things and other gods to satisfy them. So Paul brings himself before the Areopagus to tell them about this God he worships. But when we look at verses 22 and 23, we need to acknowledge that Paul's words there can seem a bit offensive to modern ears. Again, what he says is, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And, and I've got several friends whose big issue with Christians is that Christians claim to know God and what he's really like. See, to them, that just sounds like arrogance. And Paul's words here would seem like the height of arrogance to them. I mean, how can Paul claim to know a God that the greatest minds in Athens don't know? I mean, surely that altar that Paul describes is a far more in keeping with modern-day sensibilities to an unknown God. So you have to simply accept that we can't know what God is really like. Surely it's just a humble admission that we're all equally in the dark about God. And it's only cocky Christians who claim otherwise. Well, the book of Acts gives us an answer to that accusation of arrogance at Paul here. See, the reason that Paul knows this unknown God is not that he's smarter than the people in Athens or that he's more spiritually aware than them. See, the reason Paul knows the living God we discovered back in Acts chapter 9. Paul knows God because God made himself known to Paul. Paul, there's no room for arrogance for Paul in explaining who God is to the people of Athens because he knows it's only because God has been gracious to him that he has a message to share at all with the people of Athens. As we saw back in Acts chapter 9, it's the same for us. When people accuse us of being arrogant as Christians, of claiming to know what God is like, the only answer we can give is that we only know what God is like because God has revealed himself to us. If God had not sent Jesus, we would all equally be in the dark about him and we could just have an altar to an unknown God and leave it at that. But God did not leave it at that. He has made himself known and if we know the living God, then our responsibility is to tell others about him. So what can we learn from Paul's sermon here about the God of Christianity. And the big question really is, why is knowing God such good news, according to Paul? And the first answer, I think, is that he's the real thing. God is the real thing. And Paul said that makes him great news for us. See, what distressed Paul about the people in Athens wasn't first and foremost their pride or their cultural quirks, or the things they did to relax. It was the fact that they worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods, and they were willing to settle for that, rather than knowing the real, living God. See, Paul's emphasis all the way through this address is on how real God is, in comparison with the gods that the Athenians worshipped. See, for Paul, it's the reality of God that makes him so precious, so praiseworthy. And Paul didn't want the Athenians to be content with anything less than the real thing. 
See, nothing else is worth worshipping, according to Paul. No one else is worth living for. And the question for us is, do we believe that? See, how do you feel when you look around and see so many people around us unaware of the real God and just content to worship other things, to live for other things? People living for their jobs. People living for their families. People looking for meaning in relationships, in sexual experimentation, in physical comfort, in security. See, as human beings, the Bible tells us we are created to worship God. And if we don't believe in God or if we reject Him, then it's not that we don't worship anything. It's that we worship anything to replace God. And the thing is, none of the things we worship will satisfy us, ultimately. None of those things are ultimately worth worshipping. Even so-called good things, like family, like work, like relationships, they cannot provide the meaning and the life that we all need. Only God, the real and living God, can do that. But of course that doesn't stop us, even as Christians, from trying to change God in our minds. Paul's saying that God is real. We need to accept what God is like, the way he's revealed himself to us. But often we do try and tinker with God, don't we? We try and mould him a bit more into our image. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read about the God in the Bible, I kind of wish I could change him slightly. I wish sometimes that God didn't punish sin just as much as he does I wish that maybe hell was not a reality. I wish that maybe it wasn't that important for people to hear about Jesus and to put their trust in him. But you see, then I'm falling into the trap of making God into an idol, of thinking I can control God, when in fact it's the reality of God through his word that makes him so praiseworthy to us. See, I have a confession to make that and when I was a younger man um, I used to fall in love a lot and um, I was chatting to a friend recently and said it was almost like a hobby I had at university I would just fall in love all the time I'd fall in love with a girl I thought was just amazing who was perfect who I was sure would devote her entire life to making me happy if I could just persuade her to do that but of course in reality I was falling in love with the idea of the girl in question rather than the real person and then I met Lily and eventually I got married to her and I suddenly discovered that loving someone was very different to how I imagined it to be see Lily didn't always do the things that I wanted to be done she didn't always see things the way I saw them in fact she was a real person she was very different from the ideas and the dreams that I might have had about what a wife would be But very quickly, I discovered that it was the very fact that she was real that enriched my life and enriched our lives together. See, I can't remold Lily into someone I might prefer to be from day to day. And see, that's a wonderful thing. And it's the same with God. God is real. There are times when God will make us uncomfortable with his holiness with his power, with his anger at sin. But Paul is clear to the people of Athens. 
only the real God is worth worshipping. No man-made idol could ever take his place. And it's the sheer reality of God that Paul challenges the man-made gods of Athens with. Because only the real God can satisfy us. Only by having a relationship with him can we enjoy life the way life is meant to be lived. So Paul's driven by that fact that God is real and he wants the people of Athens to know that. He also wants them to know that this God is powerful and generous to them. That's verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. See, Paul wants the people of Athens to know the God he's describing is not only the creator God, he is the God who rules over creation. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is a God who gives rather than takes. You see, idol worship in Athens was ritualistic. And things like visiting the temple of your God and making sacrifices to them were all important. But Paul says that the God he's describing is different to that. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. See, Paul is saying, we don't give to God. God is the one who gives to us. And that would have been an astonishing truth for the Athenians to grasp, as well as a deeply liberating one. And it's a liberating truth that the people around us need to hear today. Because the idols of modern-day Britain are demanding, and they are unforgiving in their demands. Success at work, physical attractiveness, personal popularity. If we live for those things, if we worship those things, they will end up ruling our lives and making us miserable. Because none of those idols can satisfy us. Because they are never satisfied with us. See, we can always be more successful. We can always try and be more beautiful. We can always try and be more popular. And if we keep on living for those things, we will end up burnt out, miserable, depressed. See, instead of those unforgiving false gods, we need an encounter with the God who made us. The living, real God who gives rather than takes. And who does not need us to serve him, but rather in his grace, he chooses to serve us by providing forgiveness and a new life with himself through his son, Jesus. See, that's a liberating truth. It's a liberating truth for everyone to hear. And it's deeply liberating for Christians as well. Because it's a truth we can forget very easily. I don't know how busy you feel at the moment. It's a busy time in the life of our church. We've got the church mission coming up in a few weeks, Legacy. And a lot of people are working really hard to make that a success. And maybe in other ways you're struggling at the minute. Maybe at work or at home you're struggling to meet the demands placed on you. You want to honour God with your life, with the way you work, the way you relate 
to people. But sometimes you just feel exhausted and worn out. You feel like God is asking too much of you. But see, listen to Paul's words here. Because they are liberating for all of us. We cannot give to God. Because God does not need anything. God doesn't demand things from us. Instead, if we trust in him, he gives everything we need to us. See, we cannot give to God and we cannot earn God's love or pay God back for all he's done for us. Instead, all we can do is trust in him and worship him and then entrust all that we have to do into his gracious hands. See, often I believe that I'm irreplaceable. And people around me, some of will say they're irreplaceable. But if we don't do things, then no one will. And God will somehow be stuck. But you see, that's a lie. Paul says here, God does not need me or anyone else to serve him. Instead, he invites us to serve him. And that is a big difference. See, if we make God out to be a demanding God who takes from us, rather than gives, then we're guilty of making God into an idol. See, instead, the living God is powerful. He gives life and breath and everything else to us. And he's generous to us. See, God didn't have to make himself known to us. God didn't have to show mercy to us when we sinned. But he chose to. He was generous to us. And that is what makes him worth worshipping. So he's generous and he is powerful, Paul says. He goes on to say he's also the God of relationships in verses 26 to 27. See, back in verse 18, um, Luke introduced us to a group of Stoics and Epicureans. And for them, their gods were detached from them. They were impersonal. They were uninterested in human affairs. But the God of the Bible that Paul describes is very different. See, verse 26 describes how God is sovereign. And he rules over all the details of our lives. Where we live, where we're from, the time in which we live. And he does all this, according to Paul, to reach out to us. See, Paul tells the Athenians, God is reaching out to you. He's not content for you to go through your life without knowing him. He is calling you to reach out to him and to trust in him. See, unlike their impersonal gods, God is a personal God, Paul's telling him. He is actively pursuing a relationship with the people of Athens. And we need to hear today that he's actively pursuing a relationship with people in Oxford today. And according to Paul, God reaches out in two different ways. Sometimes through events in our lives. Sometimes we can recognise God's hand at work in our lives. That's in verse 26. As we see the time set for us the exact places where we live, are actually determined for us by God. And it's useful to ask questions about that. What brought you to Oxford? There may be loads of different reasons that led you here. But the ultimate answer, according to Paul, is that God brought you to Oxford. What has happened to you in your life some of us might think of our lives as having been pretty good up to now. Others have had to struggle 
and experience pain. But Paul says here that the things that have happened to us are things that were meant to bring us to the point where we will reach out to God. See, some people will reach out to God because their lives are so good. They instinctively want to thank God for that. Other people, perhaps more people, reach out to God when their lives are hard, when events in their lives show them that they cannot make it on their own. But you see, Paul says God uses these events, God uses these good and bad times to call people to himself. Often it's only after the fact that we can see God's hand at work, but the truth is there, that God has been at work in your life and in my life and continues to work in us to lead us to trust in him more, to open our eyes more and more to who he is and what he's done for us. And of course, the second way God reaches out to us is through people. He uses events and he uses people. For the people of Athens, it was Paul. God called Paul to tell the people of Athens about himself, to bring them into relationship with him. And for us, we can thank God for people who maybe have been influential to us coming to trust in Jesus. We can thank God, we can praise God for that. Because that is God's hand at work in our lives. See, God is a personal God, a God of relationships. And he's reaching out to people, even today. And then in verse 28, we see that the God of the Christian gospel is the one who gives us life and who invites us into his family. And here in verse 28, Paul quotes from some pagan poets who would be well known to the people of Athens he's speaking to. Just read verse 28 there. He goes, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And what is it that Paul points out from these poets? Well, first of all, he says that without God, we would have no life. In him we live and move, Paul says. And to fully enjoy life, we need to acknowledge the God who made us. And that is true of every human being. And it's true of Christians as well. As Jesus reminds us in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is our life if we're Christians. And apart from him, we would have no life. We need to recognise that in our God. And then the second quote, we are his offspring, reminds us that God is our creator, but more than that, it tells us about the relationship God wants to have with his people. See, God has created all people in the world, Paul says. So, in one sense, he is the father of all of us. But the New Testament is clear that for us to truly enjoy a relationship with God as our father, we need to be adopted into his family and we need to receive his Holy Spirit. And in fact, adoption into God's family is one of the most precious blessings of being a Christian. As Paul puts it elsewhere in Romans 8, when we trust in Jesus, we receive the spirit of sonship, he says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The story is told of a boy who was being taunted in a school playground by his friends because they just found out that he was adopted. His parents had adopted him. And they were being really cruel, mocking him, taunting him with cruel names. But the boy's response was this. He said, well, at least my parents chose me 
your parents were stuck with you. See, God has chosen to bring us into his family at a great personal cost to himself. The death of his son on the cross. God is our father because he chose to adopt us. You are precious to him and you can praise him for that. And then Paul comes to the end of this sermon. This great description of God's character to the people of Athens. And he has one more thing to say to them about this God. And that is that this God demands a response. See, God is real, Paul says, so don't remould him in your own image, in verse 29. Verse 30 then has Paul saying, God is patient with you. But a time is coming, Paul says, when you will meet him, whether you're ready to or not. Verse 31. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. See what Paul's saying here. Jesus' resurrection is a signpost in history that God will judge the world. And it's both great news and a warning to us. See, by raising Jesus to life, God demonstrated he had power over death. God has overcome death in Jesus. So if we trust in him, we no longer have to fear death. So if we trust in Jesus, death cannot separate us from his love. But if we reject Jesus, death cannot separate us from his judgment and his wrath. See, the resurrection tells us how precious God's good gift of new life is to us. That God is so good as to defeat death completely. But it also tells us we cannot afford to ignore that man that he rose back to life. That man, Jesus, who is his judge and who will judge us as to how we have responded to him. So what do we learn from Paul's description of the living God here? We learn that God is real. We learn that he is powerful and generous. We learn that he is the personal God of relationships. He is our life. He wants to be our father. And he demands a response from us. See, Paul tells all this to the people of Athens because he knows that is actually the greatest news they could ever hear about who this God is. See, Paul delighted in God's character. So much that he longed for others to know God. And the challenge for us, as we leave Paul this morning, is do we delight in God the way that Paul does? Do we recognise that he actually is the great news that we have to share with people? That he is the creator and sustainer of life. He's a personal God. He's a gracious God. A God who reaches out to us. See, John Piper's right in saying that God is the gospel. He's our gospel. It's all about him. And when we think about reaching out to people, it is him that we need to point them to. Him that we need to worship ourselves and call others to worship too. So let's share God's character with one another. We do that by telling people who don't know about God about him. 
We even do that as Christians together when we share with one another just how good he is and we encourage one another with his character. But let's do that. Let's share this living God that Paul knows with one another. Because the greatest news any of us can hear is that God is real, that God is good, and that God is loving. And that's the news we have to bring to people. And we need to do that with courage, but also with joy. Because this God is our God. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news.